Hello, my name is Sanjit Gupta. I'm a grad student at Cal and I listen to Berkeley Grocks every day. I enjoy the uh, celebration of sciences with radio. It's kind of like the uh, radio that I listened to uh, back in Bombay. Thank you. Come again. Listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show: Slim Runners, Forgetful Mice, and Horny Frogs. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Todd Jersey, who will talk about permaculture. Also, we'll find out what dopamine is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Rocks, I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Awesome. All right. Well, of course you're doing awesome because it's all about science this week. Yeah, science. <laughs> all right. And chemicals. And chemicals. You know, I'm, I'm feeling like they should rename the periodic table with uh, a chemical called science. <laughs> Element number 118, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, I just saw a periodic table written Chinese. Okay. So every uh, every element had their own Chinese character associated oh, with it. Oh, that's pretty cool. Well, yeah. they certainly have enough characters to go around, so I can't <laughs> imagine that it would be that hard for them to come up with one. Yeah. So uh, what's our chemical of the week this week? Okay, well, I'll go with Nobelium. Nobelium? Yeah. Is there Nobelium? <laughs> I thought there might be, actually. Okay. Well, uh, at, least ca- at least Californium. How about that? Of course. How about something that you can trust? Something that I can trust. Uh, okay. Uh, actually, more biological. Uh, oxytocin. Uh, is that a periodic element? Uh, it's not an element, but it's a compound that is uh, biologically relevant. It's uh, released during you know, certain social interactions as a neurotransmitter, and it helps people gain trust with each other. Right. I guess whenever you have some sort of bonding activity, the oxytocin is released in the brain and rearranges all your circuits. Yeah. And also in uh, females, I think it aids in their uh, in the birthing process. Uh, apparently, it somehow regulates the contraction of the uterine muscles. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. But uh, there was a study that carried out to see if this oxytocin is something you could actually uh, carry in a bottle, something that you could use to influence the interaction between people. Okay. So spritz a little oxytocin when you're trying to do a deal or something. Yeah. And it turns out there is a, a bit of an effect here. So some researchers at the University of Zurich in Switzerland, uh, what they did was they recruited 194 male volunteers and assigned them the role of either investors or trustees. And uh, investors were given money and three puffs of an inhaler containing the oxytocin or a placebo. And it showed that the, the people who inhaled the oxytocin had a uh, greater propensity to invest the money or give off the money. Oh, okay. So they were a little more trusting and they uh, decided to loosen up their wallet. Uh, apparently so, but it only it only works between people. If you replace the uh, the trustee with a computer, okay. apparently the effect is not seen anymore. Okay, so you need to have something. You know what works for me? Liquor. Liquor. 
Liquor. Liquor's quicker, huh? <laughs> Indeed. And candy's dandy. Of course. <laughs> but the thing is, this study may be slightly skewed since it turns out all the volunteers are students who tend to be much more frugal than the average population. Oh, uh, right, right. Well, uh, it's certainly interesting to note, and I'm sure uh, future studies will be done to test it. Right. All right. But uh, I guess we got to be aware of those casinos pumping out oxytocin into their uh, air system one of these days. Well, it just might make the dealers trust you even more, and they'll, they'll give you the uh, money away. So <laughs> oh, it works both ways. Right? <laughs> so this is an interesting study, and it's uh, published in a recent edition of Nature. All right, Frank. So uh, do you remember what you were doing last week? Uh, absolutely not. I don't remember what I ate last night. You might have Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's? Yeah. You know, you're a young man. I think uh, it's about time you got it. It's a good thing because I can uh, relive all the uh, good things again and again and again. <laughs> Just like a memento. So actually, uh, this is actually quite fascinating because uh, researchers now are uh, looking at sort of standard causes for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, there are two proteins, the tau protein and the uh, amyloid beta protein. Mm-hmm. And a group of researchers are actually focusing on this tau protein because uh, it's one of the uh, proteins implicated in Alzheimer's. And what they've done is they've done a mice study recently in which they've uh, down-regulated the genetic expression of tau Okay. And they've shown that these mice actually perform better on a memory test. Wow. So the tau protein and amyloid, are they somehow uh, variations of each other? or? So the, the tau proteins cause these tangles in the brain. I see. And the amyloid beta protein uh, results in these plaques. And it's not really known whether or not these tangles and plaques are actually involved in, say, disrupting the mm. behavior or whether or not there's some other biochemical process mm-hmm. they're involved in. Uh, but it's quite fascinating because it's actually showing that uh, if you remove this tau protein, just one of the proteins implicated, it actually results in a uh, bit of an improvement hmm. in the memory. Uh, but apparently it's not the complete story because the the memory enhancement's only, uh, you know, half of what it could be. Wow. So they don't return to normal, but they return a little bit. So I guess this sort of sheds some light into the mechanism of Alzheimer's. Uh, the researchers Karen Ash, uh, who is a neurobiologist at the University of Minnesota Medical School in Minneapolis, basically have just said just this. It's basically a two-protein disease, they think, and uh, you got to deal with both of them in order to have an effect. Well, good things come in twos, right? <laughs> Always well, two there are. Or even bad things, yeah. The Master and the Apprentice. So very fascinating work published in a recent edition of Science. So, Charles, have you ever had the problem where your neighbors were mating and extremely loud and so you just couldn't sleep? Well, you know, it's particularly bad because I live in a whorehouse. (laughs) (laughs) The rent is really cheap, so what are you going to (laughs) do? So it turns out Hawaii may be becoming a whorehouse. Uh, in, in what way? Uh, there's an infestation of um, a species of frog called a koki, and apparently they're extremely loud. They uh, give up a, a shriek when they uh, try to mate with each other. Okay. And unfortunately, their population has uh, multiplied exponentially in recent years. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, is the change in the environment, I guess, uh, increasing their uh, whatever food they're eating on? Well, actually, these frogs are not indigenous to uh, Hawaii. Ooh, okay. They're originally from uh, Puerto Rico or Florida. I guess it got hitched uh, with a plant or something they were transporting. In the last 10 years or so, they just multiplied exponentially, and there's no natural predators to control them. Oh, wow. So it's Hawaii's version of the rabbit. <laughs> uh, basically. <laughs> Oh, wow. So uh, what are basically people doing about this in Hawaii? Since uh, eradication seems to be so difficult, they're just trying to contain it to regions where it's already infested. A lot of people are worried because it drive down the price of uh, real estate since (laughs) a lot of neighbors will not be happy. Right. Well, you know, get used to it. It could be the next musical trend, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's not good news, I guess, but... uh... I guess you could introduce some predators, and then all kinds of crazy things will happen. So uh, this is an unpleasant instance of um, species propagating, but uh, Brooks Kayser at the University of Hawaii is doing an economic impact study of mm. this phenomena. 
Okay, well, uh, hopefully they'll get that contained. All right, well, if the frog uh, situation in Hawaii gets too much to you, you can run away from it. Of course. Yes, but it helps, of course, if you're uh, a little bit skinny when you do so. It's certainly the case for, I guess, long-distance runners. Uh, uh -huh. Sprint runners, obviously, they're very muscular and, and, you know, they can run short distances quickly. Right. But it turns out for long-distance runners, it's no surprise that it's better if you're thin. And it was a question why this is. Why mm -hmm. is it actually better to be thin? Um, and it turns out that a lot of the energy that is expended uh, when you're running is mm -hmm. actually involved in um, supporting your body weight while you're running. Oh, really? Yeah. So I guess the question was whether or not it was that or whether it was the actual, uh, you ex exerted more energy running and uh, swinging your limbs around. Mm -hmm. uh, but researchers led by uh, Peter Wyan from Rice University and Adam Davis from Houston Center for Human Performance mm -hmm. uh, tested this. Then they show that basically the uh, motion of swinging the arms is actually conserved. All these sort of elastic uh, elements in your body actually just conserve the energy and it it propels you forward. Right. And that actually more, most of your energy is spent uh, when you hit the ground and supporting your body weight. Huh, that's so, interesting. Yeah, so the less body weight you have, the, you know, the better you are and the, the longer you'll be able to run. Hmm, but it looks like those bears are, you know, pretty fast <laughs> when they are attacking me. <laughs> well, you know, because they're on for a sprint, right? But yeah. I bet you could outrun them on a long-distance run. Um, it was published in a recent edition of the Journal of Experimental Biology. Wow, J-E-V. <laughs> Jebs. <laughs> And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Todd Jersey joins us to talk about permaculture. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, joining us today is a renowned architect, Todd Jersey, here in Berkeley. And right now we're here in his lovely backyard, a um, sustainable and green environment here. Uh, Mr. Jersey, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Well, thanks for having me. So, first of all, could you tell us what is permaculture and give us a little background into its history? Well, permaculture was started by a, a gentleman named Bill Mollison, an Australian gentleman, who was a worked in uh, forestry uh, in Australia. And he, what he recognized was that in the forest, the, the native natural forest ecosystem were very, very productive. But they were productive by themselves. They were independent of, of anything that uh, man did. 
and that our, our agricultural systems required an enormous amount of energy, you know, fossil fuel energy and human labor energy to make work and were, were much less productive. And it really just came from ob- his observations of uh, these different uh, systems, the natural forest ecosystem versus the, the created agricultural system, one requiring no energy and super productive, one requiring a lot of energy and, and much less productive. So what were the principles that were going on? What were, the, what were the scientific principles happening in the forest ecology that were not happening uh, in, in our agricultural system? And how do we apply those principles then to create an agricultural system that would be mimic the, the forest ecosystem? And that's where he came up with the idea of permanent agriculture, uh, sustainable agriculture, you might call it, or permaculture. Permaculture sort of become now a, a larger movement, which is encompassed not just agriculture, but also designs of cities. And it's just become um, sort of synonymous with uh, global sustainability. So tell us, how did you become interested in this approach for building homes? Well, permaculture, again, let's use it as, um, synonymously with sustainable design. I got interested in permaculture when I did my first house, and I watched what happened to the land when the bulldozers came in, and they sort of, well, they destroyed the the, the land. And I, I almost thought maybe I shouldn't do architecture because I'm an environmentalist. I'm such a conservationist by heart and I just can't stand looking at this damage. And then I uh, found out about permaculture and I went and studied permaculture. And I've learned now that as a designer, I can design buildings and habitat and, you know, not just buildings, but I can design land uh, and I can design it for human use to serve human uses. That also helps with the overall environment. Um, We can design things that that enable uh, humans to live well while also enabling um, the whole ecosystem to flourish. And so um, that's why I got excited about permaculture, because it enabled me to see, oh, I don't have to quit architecture. <laughs> I, I can, you know, I can actually, as an architect, I can serve my, you know, my sort of heart's mission of protecting uh, the earth. Great. And I understand you've designed a number of homes. Um, could you perhaps describe uh, what they're like? The Feichtmeyer residence is probably our best example and we, we, we call it a permaculture homestead and on this house it's a five acre lot that our clients asked us to design and they really wanted to live like the people would have lived back in in the homesteading days where you'd go and you'd actually live off the land you live from the resources directly from the land you were really dependent on that site uh, and so then you lived in direct partnership with that site We've designed a house that has a nice size photovoltaic solar electric system. It has a cistern which gathers all the rainwater off the roof and stores it in a 40,000 gallon cistern, probably bigger than most homesteads (laughs) in the past. It's designed to be extremely energy efficient. Uh, It uses both passive or solar heating. So allowing the sun to enter the building during the, uh, during the winter when the, when the warmth is wanted. And then, of course, it, with the custom design of the overhang, you're, you're keeping the sun out of the building during the summer. And then you're using passive cooling strategies. Now, all of these strategies are, are described in the website. We like to talk about is, is the difference between a sailboat and a, a motorboat. A motorboat is a conventional home. It requires gasoline or fuel. It requires fossil fuels to run it. A sailboat, of course, is running off wind energy. It's running off the uh, uh, wind energy, which is, of course, solar energy. So our homes are running our solar homes. They're sail. They're more like sailboats than, than uh, and so they can live off the site energy. So all this energy is being gathered directly on the site. The water is being gathered directly from the site. They're growing food there. We've done a permaculture landscape at the house, and we worked with uh, another permaculture designer up there, and we really 
really customize where different things are being grown. And what about heating? Uh, how much of the heating and cooling needs can we uh, do away with? Especially in this climate here in California where you have hot, dry climates and you have, um, you have a nice temperature swing, which is actually great for, for passive cooling. So at, in the summer, we're going to keep the sun from coming into the building and heating it up because we have a lot of, lot of heat. We're getting 100 degree uh, days up, up there. All over California except for the Bay Area and the coast, you're getting 100 degree and, and up days. And we have a hot, dry climate. So the great thing is that during the day when the heat is coming into the building, it's being absorbed by the thermal mass. So we rarely, all of our, none of our houses require air conditioning, even in 100 degree days. So all absorbing all that heat and then at night, what we call night flushing, and you open the windows at night, it's just the opposite of what most people do in hot climates. We close the windows during the day and we open them at night. At night, cool air flushes out the heat from the thermal mass. The mass, of course, is gonna relinquish its heat to the air. It's gonna cool down that mass, just like when you put a frying pan into the sink, cools it down, and then it'll do that same thing. It's so daily it's cycle. We use a, some rules of thumb. You basically need about two inches of thermal mass on the wall to go to work. And that's any more than two inches, the, the heat really doesn't exchange back and forth during a 24 hour period. And how affordable are these designs? No, sustainable design is not expensive. Con uh, conventional design is expensive. It's just like the sailboat analogy. You don't have to pay for the gas. You're not paying for the gas. You're using, you know, you're not paying for motors and you're not paying, you know, you don't have equipment that's that's breaking down on you. So um, most of the, the green buildings we design are also of a much, much higher durable quality than your standard conventional stick frame building. So our buildings tend to be a little bit more expensive because they're higher quality, but not because they're sustainable. And of course, over the long run, what we call life cycle costs, you're going to get huge savings. Our houses are typically saving upwards of $1,000 a year in energy costs versus the standard conventional house. So tell us a little bit about your house. Would you say it's carbon neutral or do you still have to get a little bit of energy from the grid? Yeah, our house, we have uh, two kinds of solar. Uh, we have the solar panels, uh, what we call solar thermal, and that's for hot water. And then we also have the photovoltaic electric and solar electric. We're not quite getting all of our, our, our energy needs because we have a limited amount of roof space. For those of us out there who are interested in learning more about permaculture or sustainable design, uh, are there any good sites or books that you would recommend? Well, the basic text for permaculture is, is really a classic book, I, and it's anybody who's, who's curious about how to, design, how to design well on planet Earth. It should really pick up the basic text of permaculture. You can go to Builder's Bookstore right here on 4th Street in Berkeley. They have a lot of um, information on permaculture and sustainable design. Uh, I would probably just do that. I would, I would go down to Builder's Bookstore and say, I want to learn more about permaculture and sustainable design. And they'll take, they'll, you know, they'll take it from there. And you can get you know, all kinds of different levels of books and information. Of course, with the Internet, lots and lots of resources. Great. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your work here? Oh, I would just say that anybody who's interested in, in the environment, environmental design, sustainable design, go look up those resources. There's also several college programs in the area that are really concentrating on that. Merritt College has a, uh, uh, has a program, San Francisco Institute of Architecture, a program in Sonoma State University, uh, Cal State Sonoma. Well, Mr. Jersey, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Thanks, Frank. And a big thank you for Ms. Angela McGuire for making this interview possible. And thank you very much for your questions. We were just talking to Mr. Todd Jersey on permaculture and sustainable architecture. To find out more about his work, you can check out his website at www.toddjerseyarchitecture.com. This is Berkeley Grox. You're listening to here on 90.7 FM, 
KALX. In a few moments, the Grokotron 5000. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, Mr. Todd Jersey has kindly agreed to join us on this week's Grokotron 5000, uh, the computer is formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, our question is sustainable or unsustainable? Okay, subject number one, Pete's Coffee. <laughs> Great question. Um, I would say to the extent that Pete's is a leader in sustainable agriculture and coffee growing and free trade coffee growing, I would say Pete's is a good model for a sustainable business. I'd say yes. Ding, ding, ding. Starbucks, no. <laughs> Well, the other thing is Pete's has remained a local business. I, I don't think it's in Pete's. Is Pete's owned by Starbucks now? Oh, thank God. I would say yes for Pete's and no to Starbucks. Starbucks is a, you know, it's a huge corporation. <laughs> All right, subject number two, Napa Valley. Oh, boy, Napa Valley. Is the Napa Valley region sustainable? No. Uh, you know, Napa Valley, like every area of the country, is maybe maybe moving towards that. Napa Valley, I think, as a valley, would have to take some some real uh, strong initiatives towards uh, organic agriculture, uh, transportation, putting in better transportation systems. I don't know what they do with their waste, but you'd have to get into serious recycling, recycling of organic. Uh, you'd have to get into uh, uh, energy production. They'd have to have their own uh, municipal, you know, utility district and get into and that kind of thing. And I doubt. I don't know enough about. Napa Valley, but I doubt as a valley or a county, let's say, um, Napa County is 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 making any serious headway towards sustainability, like say San Francisco. You know, the the industry, the wine industry, could be a model of sustainability. I know Robert Sinsky Vineyards uh, is moving towards organic wines. I don't know about the recycling program or anything like that, but I know uh, I know uh, Robert Sinsky himself is very interested in moving towards a sustainable business model. All right, subject number three. The President of the United States, George W. Bush. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you 
Sustainable or unsustainable? <laughs> Fortunately, very unsustainable. Hopefully, hopefully, in sometime in this next year. He did make it to, to the second term, though. That doesn't mean he's sustainable, though. Lies do not sustain themselves. Lies will always will, will always fail. Bush likes motorboats. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and, and rifle guns. <laughs> and that's right. <laughs> Bush, not sustainable. <laughs> All right, subject number four, a uh, personality of a different type, uh, software guru, William Gates. I don't, th I don't see any major initiative towards environmental sustainability from Microsoft. I mean, at least even Starbucks has some inklings of initiatives around fair trade, some maybe some organic stuff. I mean, I think they're just doing it to please, please the constituents, but I don't see any initiatives from Microsoft. There are some real models of sustainable interface carpets, one of the, one of the biggest models of a major corporate, uh, major corporation. They're, they make rugs. Uh, I, think the, I think the parent company is Interweave, but I'm not sure. But anyway, Interface. Ray Anderson is the CEO. He, he made a major initiative towards uh, uh, sustainability. They used 100% recycled fibers in lots of their carpets. They recycle every, all of their carpets. Okay, and lastly, subject number five, uh, world-renowned architect Norman Foster. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, Norman. Oh boy, I'd say 50%. <laughs> yeah, he sort of, you know, does some really interesting things and 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 but I think Norman's heart is really in just what's new and and sort of what's um yeah, what's sexy. <laughs> is that right? He's not really that interested in the environment, but he's but this is my take on Norman, you know. He's just like, well, you know, obviously it's the big thing and it's the new thing and so I want to be there. You know, I don't want to miss the boat. The sustainability <laughs> boat. But right, right, right. He sees that's it. Norman's cruising on his in his big motorboat, this huge motorboat, with all this stuff, and he sees this gorgeous sailboat go by and goes, "That's nicer looking than my boat." <laughs> all right, Mr. Jersey, thanks for joining us on the Grokotron 5000. Oh, enjoyed it, Frank. <laughs> and now here's Chicago Joe with the answer to last week's question of the week. Okay, and now it's the Godfather with this week's answer to last week's question of the week. Hey, Capiche? You want to, you bring this dopamine into my house, and I'm wondering, what's that dopamine doing to you? Why are you bringing it into my house? Why are you insulting me like this? Well, it turns out the dopamine, my friend, you know what it does to you? It makes you moody. It's the affection disorder. It's the neuromodulator compound, man. Why are you liking it do it to you? Don't bring it into my house anymore. <clears throat> and Yoda with this week's question of the week. It surrounds us. It binds us. Hmm. Here it is. Will 900 old you are have as many hair as I will, will you? Hmm. But what is it made of? Is it strong with the force? If you know what it is, or what it's made of, then email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might not need that to pay. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music.